Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. This is Enkyo Roshi's fourth time back into Toronto. Yes. And um, I first encountered uh, Enkyo Roshi. I was uh, studying in Massachusetts at a center where they produced a journal called the Insight Journal. And there was an interview with Roshi in the journal. And Roshi talked about the Dharma being something that can be practiced deep in the life of a city. And she spoke about Manhattan in the same way that Basho speaks about Kyoto. And I thought, I'm going to like this person. And so, of course, I encouraged everybody except myself to go study with her. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, eventually met her, and uh, she has been a great teacher and a great friend to me for a long, long time. And um, also to many people uh, who are here. Um, who haven't really had a chance to study with her in person that much, but have a kind of uh, uh, heart friendship, uh, especially because of digital media. And um, uh, Enkyo Roshi leads the uh, village Zendo, which is an urban Zen temple in the heart of the East Village in Manhattan. And um, one of the ways that I've always found... uh, in my approach to finding a teacher has been as much as I like them to really check out their community first and to see if they just surround themselves with yes people. Um, And the interesting thing about the village Zendo is that she has the most eccentric sangha (laughs) I've ever encountered. And uh, I think part of that is that they're in the East Village, but another part of that is uh, Enkyo Roshi and her style of teaching. And she was also a professor for a long time, 20 or 25? 20 years. 20 years uh, at NYU. And um, to have the combination of being a great uh, Zen teacher, but also to really know how to reach people, which I think partly comes out of her uh, teaching at NYU for so long, um, is really a rare combination. And I've been so excited all month for this evening and this weekend, and also... um, because I know so many of you well, and you haven't, some of you haven't met Roshi, it's also exciting for me, it feels like, to share this person who is uh, significant in my life. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Michael, 
Thank you so much for asking me back, and I'm surprised. It's just delightful to see so many people. I think that's a testament to Michael's uh, practice and his work here in the city. And here we are in this, in this room. Be in this room for a minute, huh? It's really magnificent. Um, you know, in tea ceremony, there's an expression, ichie, ichigo. One time, one meeting. And it's to remind you, you know, when you start with the tea ceremony, that, oh, this is just right now. This is not going to happen again. So even when we were sitting before we began, and there were all these different sounds in the room, of the chairs creaking and all kinds of different sounds, we were just all, one time, one meeting, here we are. So again, Michael, I appreciate so much your asking uh, me to come and uh, showing me some of Toronto today, lovely. Um, seems like there's a great appetite for the Dharma here. And I think that's wonderful. However we practice the Dharma, whatever flavor we're attracted to or which is available to us, uh, we can take so much and give so much if we just pay attention to this time, this meeting, tonight. It's not our idea of what we might learn tonight, but whatever, whatever comes, whatever happens to us tonight. I promised to speak about uh, poetry in Zen, Zen poetry, which is something that I love very much. I wonder here, how many people of you are came primarily for the Zen part? No one. How many? <laughs> one person, two, three, four. And so uh, the rest came for the poetry? Is that true? Yeah. Okay. I was just curious. I had no, no sense of that. And then Michael mentioned that he knows a lot of you, so I assume that an awful lot of you came because uh, Center of Gravity is sponsoring this. Huh? Yes, a lot of nodding faces. So if you said that you were interested in Zen, you know, it doesn't mean I'm now going to throw a coin at you and uh, uh, ask you to um, show yourself right now. Maybe another time, another meeting. This time, this meeting, I want to talk about Zen poetry and how it interacts with uh, the activity of Zen. Zen, um, just kind of on a broad scale for anyone who... Zen is a form, of, it's a tradition of Buddhism. And Zen itself means mind or concentration. It comes from the... Uh, Sanskrit jhana, through the uh, Chinese chan, and the pronunciation in Japanese is zen. And uh, so that's, that's what we know as zen here in the West. Uh, we, we use that expression more often than we use chan as a form. 
So there was a great Japanese poet by the name of Ryokan that you may be familiar with. And he wrote, who says my poems are poems? They aren't poems at all. Only when you understand my poems aren't poems can we talk poetry. Okay, so. Then by going by the way of neg- negative of saying, not this. Who says my poems are poems? So you could read it, who says my poems are poems? Quotation marks. They aren't poems at all. Only when you understand that they're not your idea of poems, your constructed, conditioned focus on poems, then we can talk about poems. So I think that everything I say today, tonight reflects Ryokan's kind of caution with words. Zen is very cautious about words. And yet, you know, in its very paradoxical way, it may have more writings about Zen than any other tradition. So it's kind of strange because um, throughout... Uh, the study of Zen, you will find this kind of ambivalent attitude towards words. Words are an opening and they are a gate. They're a barrier. They can be both. To explain that better, uh, I'll use the expression, uh, the story of Kyogen, who was, uh, let's see, Mm, I didn't write the notes down, but I think he was about 8th century uh, Chinese uh, teacher, before he became a teacher, he was a, a scholar who had gone through the Confucian system, had become a dis, uh, discouraged by the Confucian system, and then studied all of the Buddhist sutras, and then felt that still he couldn't see what it was that he wanted. He wanted to be free. And so he decided to study Zen, and he studied with a master, Isan. And uh, so he is this great scholar, Kyogen. And he goes to Isan and he says, you know, show me the way. And Isan says, okay, show me your face before your mother and father were born. Show me your face before your mother and father were born. This is now, this is a koan we use in our tradition even today. So it takes you back. I mean, how can you show a face? How can you express that? So Kyogen worked on that for a year and then another year, and he became extremely frustrated because he was a very brilliant man, a brilliant scholar. He could not find a way to express this. Um, And so he finally went to Isan, very discouraged and says, please, please explain this to me. I don't understand it. Explain it to me. And Isan said, well, if I explain it to you, it's my experience, not yours. I would be doing you a great injustice if I were to explain it to you. You have to see it for yourself. You have to experience it yourself. Kyogen goes back to his study, and he uh, goes through all the sutras again. He, he does everything he can, and he is just completely frustrated. He gives up, 
and he leaves the monastery. And he says, I'm just going to be an ordinary pilgrim for the rest of my life. And I'm not going to try to find the answer because the answer is clearly not in the books. And he said this very famous thing. He said, uh, a painted cake doesn't satisfy my hunger. A painted cake does not satisfy my hunger. This is the Zen view of words. This is the, if it's a picture, if it's a description, it's not it. That's what he was saying. So, he went off uh, and uh, found this, uh, this cemetery where a great teacher had died and was a, it was an unkempt place, a burial place. And so he decided, oh, this is what I'll do with my life, is I'll just keep this gravesite clean and neat. So he built himself a little hut alongside the gravesite and every day he would go out and he'd sweep and clean it up and, and tend to the, to the trees and the shrubbery around there. And one day as he was uh, sweeping, uh, a pebble hit a bamboo. Oh! And at the instant that that happened, he suddenly got what it was Isan was trying to show him. He suddenly saw the face that he had before his mother and father were born. He suddenly experienced that. And the story goes that he immediately offered incense and gave praise to his teacher, Isan, and said, oh, thank gosh, you didn't tell me in words or in signs I would never have known this if I hadn't done it myself. This is a primary Zen approach. And that's where the wariness with words comes from. Um, So, naturally, he wrote a poem about this, right? With words. (laughs) Which is the paradox that we'll be exploring all night. And his poem was... One pock, and all scholarship is released. No pretense. The old path is right here. Not obscured by shallow games, there is no trace. It is beyond sound and form. The way is everywhere. Beyond speech, just this. So, this was his... Enlightenment verse. Powerful insight. But uh, when he shared this poem with his Dharma brother, Yangshan, Yangshan said, no, you haven't got it. (laughs) You have to go deeper. And so he practiced for another year. And then he wrote another poem. And he wrote, My poverty last year was not real poverty. This year, it is want indeed. In last year's poverty, there was still room for a gimlet. This year, even the gimlet is gone. There's still room for a needle 
is what he's saying. So my poverty, you know, and, and we, in Zen we really value this quality of, uh, of wabi, of, of, of austerity, of uh, simplicity. So not having anything is the highest. Being very ordinary is the highest. And so he says, my poverty last year was not the real thing. I thought it was. This year is the real thing. Last year there was room for a needle point, a gimlet. This year even the gimlet is gone. And Yangshan said, no. <laughs> His Dharma brother said, still, it's very good, but it's just not quite good enough. So Kyogen, <laughs> again, studies himself. And he says, no, I have my secret. Look at my twinkling eyes. If you can't see it, you don't call yourself a monk. And at that, Yang San Chen, his Dharma brother, agreed that he had finally gotten through. Now what's interesting about that is the first poem, you know, it's, uh, it's very beautiful and uh, it does express an experience he had. The second one is a little bit more modest and a little bit more interior. And the third one is just spontaneous and alive. It's fresh. Ah, don't you see the twinkle in my eye? It's present. It's a wonderful, wonderful shifting, subtle shifting quality of the language there. So these, the last two poems that he talks about uh, kind of show uh, what I think are, or what is kind of agreed upon by many, to be the major attributes of Zen poetry. And that would be, first of all, this quality of wabi. This quality, you may have heard it, you, those of you who are artists may, may be aware of it. It's, it's used a lot in terms of of uh, pottery, tea bowls have a have a quality of wabi, which means there's a kind of poverty of design. They're not sh- fancy and shiny. Quite the contrary, the more uh, primitive they look, uh, the, and the more simple they look, uh, the higher the quality. So this quality of wabi also are old things like um, the scarf. I, I didn't intend to mention it, but I noticed that there are all these little stains on it. And, uh, and it kind of makes it nicer. In a way, it's, it's more beautiful now than I've had it for some 20 years. And that's wabi. This is not wabi. <laughs> Although it, you know, tastes good. <laughs> but uh, that quality of, that worn quality, we all probably know, you know how it is, even with an old pair of jeans. There's something that has a sort of quality of wabi about them. And, and also, it's a quality of, of ordinariness that you find in the poetry. Um, my poverty was not real poverty. 
And then the other one is this austerity, sabi. This is quality of austerity. Um, it's also called aloneness. And of course, we in the West, we're terrified of aloneness. But it means aloneness in the sense of detachment, not, not a kind of codependent grasping after a reaction. It's a kind of uh, solitariness. Michael and I were talking uh, this afternoon. I was telling him about my trip to Tibet last fall. And I, I was explaining why I hiked alone because most of the people on the trek were quite young and f- much faster than I was. And uh, so I would like get into camp last. <laughs> but, uh, and I was telling him what a joy that was because I spend so much time with people all my life. And this was like days, 30 days of hiking. And essentially on my own. I mean, wonderful community at breakfast and wonderful community at dinner, but the whole day completely alone. This quality of sabi was just delightful and a kind of like detachment from, from that kind of constant interaction that many of us, because we choose to live our lives that way, have, you know. But there, there's a quality of solitariness that you'll also find in many of the poems I'll read tonight a kind of detachment from the everyday run of uh, kind of activity of people. And then a quality called aware, which is impermanence. Well, it's really an awareness of impermanence, a kind of poignancy in each moment. We were also talking about uh, cherry blossoms today, And the reason cherry blossoms are so appreciated in so many cultures uh, is they they have come to represent impermanence because there's nothing there except something's hiding in the branches and then out comes this extraordinarily beautiful, extraordinarily fragile, extraordinarily impermanent thing and then it's gone just like our lives, right? Just like our lives and the lives of those we love. So it comes to represent that quality of life that bursts forth, is beautiful, and then falls and dies. Uh, And that's a very poignant, and it's not sentimental. Of course, it can be. You have to be careful. But typically, it's a very poignant feeling uh, that you find in in the poetry of Zen. This sense, what I mentioned at the beginning of one time, one meeting, only now, only now. It's wonderful. Awade. And then uh, finally something called yugen, or a a kind of profundity, a depth. Uh, You don't find many Zen poems that are really trivial. There's, 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 a, there's a quality, it's an, and Yugen ha- carries along the characters, if you look at them, carries along this look of, of kind of the dark, the prof- in, in a sense that profundity or depth, you know, talks about like the sea or something deep and dark. Also, Yugen, it has this quality of, it's, it's serious. Even the ones that make you laugh are very serious. 
Um, some, and, and so those are the qualities of the words when they are put together in a way that they're, they're actually can trigger an insight with us, which is one of the main purposes of Zen poetry, is to trigger insight. So already we said that words can, um, are something to be ignored, that they're something that will lead us in the wrong direction. Uh, and yet, you know, they're a barrier, but a barrier is a gate, and the gate can open and can get you through if it's skillful. Um, Dogen, um, the great Zen master from Japan, uh, the 13th century Zen master, is said to have had his major enlightenment experience when he heard just the phrase, falling away, body and mind. Body and mind falling away. So you could imagine that somehow he was prepared to hear that because you all heard that. (laughs) Just now. He jumped up and ran and saw his teacher and repeated the lines, falling away, body and mind, falling away. Another uh, great master, Hakuin, was said to have had a major enlightenment experience when he heard the phrase from Kido, it is for you the leaves stir up a breeze. It is for you the leaves stir up a breeze. And Hakuen, who was a very rigorous master, was also had this great heart. And you can get that in this. It is for you that the leaves stir up a breeze. So always in Zen we have this back and forth. We, words are put down, and yet there's a great appreciation of words in the poetry. In our Zen um, koan study, um, after a student has progressed a little little ways into the koan curriculum, uh, they're asked to supply a capping phrase to to each koan. So the student memorizes the koan and uh, gives his or her presentation of the koan. And um, usually there's a verse associated with the koan that's been co- by one of the collectors in the medieval time or in Tang Dynasty even, well, from the 12th century on. Um, so there'll be a poem and then the teacher will work with the student to extract the meaning of the poem as it refers to the koan, as it refers to the student's life. And then finally, when you've kind of battled your way through that, the uh, teacher will ask you for a capping phrase. And a capping phrase uh, in Japan and in China is usually a, a verse from some ancient verse. And in, in here in this country, I use a lot of, encourage people to use uh, music, uh, popular music that they've heard, or um, a nursery rhyme, or a, poem, a line from a poem, contemporary poem, rather than this ancient. Uh, phrases that were used. Uh, but there's one capping phrase that I'm very fond of from the Zen forest is words, 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 
fluttering drizzle and snow. Silence, 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 a roaring thunderbolt. That one comes completely on the side of the power of silence. And seeing words as, you know, they're fluttering, drizzle, and snow. Present, beautiful, and yet gone. You can't grasp them, you can't hold on to them. Use them to wake yourself up, but don't cling to them, because they'll disappoint you. They'll become constructions in your mind. That's what we would know. talk about it nowadays. We'd say, oh, it becomes an idea then, and it is no longer alive. That's what we mean by one time, one meeting. If you can meet a verse, if you can meet a poem now, and have that experience in that moment. It's alive to you. But uh, tomorrow is another time and another meeting. That's a crucial, that's what this capping phrase is pointing to, equating words with drizzle and snow and silence with a roaring thunderbolt. So what to do about this problem where on the one hand words are very helpful and on the other hand they can be a barrier. Here's a poem by um, Guido Shusen who was asked to explain the secret teachings and he wrote this to his student. If I explained them out loud then it wouldn't be a true explanation. And if I transmitted them on paper, where would be the secret? And then he tells him, at a western window on a rainy autumn night, white hair in the guttering lamplight, asleep facing the bed. He gives him the answer to the secret teachings right there. In such in wabi sabi aware yugen gives you the teachings in the sense of poverty, simplicity, austerity. It's just it's a moment in, in time when the lamplight is just in that moment shining off this old teacher's gray hair, white hair, in the guttering lamplight, guttering lamplight, huh? That was translated by David Pollock. There, I have brought two books for you to look at and to consider. I, I, nowadays, these two books are, are wonderful translations, comp- compilations. The first one is The Poetry of Zen with Sam Hamill and Seton. They did most of the translations in this book, and they're quite excellent. And this one, this Everyman book, uh, has many different... Um, Translators, and it's quite wonderful. It's called Zen Poems. Peter Harris is the uh, editor in this. So, 
you know, you could say, well, why? Why even try if there's this constant uh, paradoxical relationship between meaning and non-meaning in Zen poetry? What what is going on here? And uh, Mumon wrote, My life is a cloud crossing the peak. My death, the moon sailing. Oh, just once admit the truth of noumenon phenomenon, and you're a donkey-tying pole. So he tries at the beginning of this poem to talk about life and death. So he says, life is a cloud crossing the peak. Shows that kind of transience of life. And death is the moon sailing. And he says, just wants to try to admit the truth between oneness, he's talking about noumenon and phenomenon, that's not a great translation, but essentially he's talking about oneness and two-ness, are that part of us that is part of everything and that part of us that is unique and separate. And you're a donkey-tying pole. So that's an expression in Zen that says, you know... uh, a, don- a pole that is for tying up donkeys, which are supposed to be you know, not the most intelligent animals. Some of you might argue with that if you're familiar with donkeys. But uh, it's where we stupidly tie up our minds. That's what a donkey tying pole is. We attach to an idea of Zen, of oneness, of spirituality. We attach to that idea, and then we cannot be free. We have an idea of enlightenment, and we've lost it, just as Kyogen did years ago, going back to his books, going back to the sutras. He couldn't. They're not there. It's not there. It's not in the donkey tying pole. Now, E.Q., who was a much later poet, addressed the same question in a very different kind of way. When, just as they are, white dew drops gather on scarlet maple trees. I'm sorry, I have to reread this. When, just as they are, white dew drops gather on scarlet maple leaves, regard the scarlet beads. That's so evocative, so beautiful. Huh? So what is he saying? This, when just as they are, white dew drops gather on scarlet maple leaves. The dew drops, the individual uniqueness of each drop. Each form covers and yet reveals same time, covers and reveals the absolute redness, the scarletness of the maple leaves. What does this mean? It's very, it's very, very rich. So in, we, if you think of yourself as a dewdrop, and you cover 
you overlay the wholeness of life. This is very hard for some of you, I know, because you're, we're all, in all cultures, all times, it's not just the West, people always say it's only the Westerners that don't know this, but everybody's always known this, that's why this, these teachings uh, exist. We all think of ourselves as separate. And it's very hard to think of ourselves as one. And that's why most of you are practicing some, a form of spiritual practice is to find, and we have this hunger to find some meaning in our life, and the meaning in our life is in our recognition of our wholeness, of the wholeness of life, of our interrelation with everything. So, these red beads on the maple leaf Are they red beads on the maple leaves? Or are they drops of dew? Do the dew drops, are the dew drops red? The dew drops are only red in the sense that they are on the red maple leaf. You are just as you are, and yet you're only as you are in relation to the whole. I mean, it's a brilliant poem. I mean, it's just, it's wonderful. It takes this one, these four lines, take the whole teaching of Zen in these four lines. It's just magnificent. I'll read it for you one more time. When just as they are, white dew drops gather on scarlet maple leaves, regard the scarlet beads. Be a scarlet bead. Reflect connect to the wholeness of life that you are. Another way of understanding this, uh, more uh, abstract, is by using the Zen circle. You all are familiar with the Enso, the circle of completion. Uh, Another uh, poet wrote, The all-meaning circle, no in, no out, no light, no shade. Here, all the saints are born. Saints is not crazy about that translation either, but here all the awakened ones are born, we could say. To recognize the inside and the outside simultaneously is what that book when that pebble hit that bamboo. It might happen to you when you're washing dishes one morning, when you're stepping off a curb, when you're rolling over at night, stretching. You know, we have this idea that enlightenment will only occur after a 30-day session when we're sitting on the top of a mountain and the full moon comes. (laughs) But my experience is over and over and over again. It happens in the most ordinary of times. One time, one meeting, when we're truly awake, it happens. That's when we see this all-meaning circle, no in, no out. Not just one, not just the other. 
like the dew on the maple leaf. It's a profound insight. You might be looking into a cup of tea and see it and become the tea and become the teacup and yet completely yourself in that moment. Only you and everything. So what would that be like? Uh, One person... The great teacher Dogen wrote, this is what, he talked about it in this way. Coming, going, the waterfowl leaves no trace, nor does it need a guide. Imagine your mind, if you didn't need to follow a guide. If you didn't need to follow the guides that you've set up for yourself, the way you've decided that you need to think, unconsciously, of course, conditioning. Imagine your mind as free as a duck floating, flying through the air, that leaves no trace, goes right through the air, and is not following any kind of guide, any lines. The wonderful image of the freedom of mind that arises when we practice whatever practice you have. When you're able to drop and get away from the rectangle. You know, so now I walk down the street and it's just amazing. It's like these strange people. Everybody's (laughs) the rectangle people. And then I am. <laughs> Me too. So some poems encourage us. Some Zen poems encourage us. And here's as one that does Manzan, who was a medieval uh, Japanese uh, Soto master, wrote, One minute of sitting, one inch of Buddha. Like lightning, all thoughts come and pass. Just once look into your mind depths. Nothing else has ever been. That's very encouraging. One minute of sitting, one inch of Buddha. If you have a practice, and like all of us who have a practice, there are times when we don't do it. So rather than uh, beating ourselves up about the times we don't do it, we just remember... One minute of sitting, one inch of Buddha. One minute of true sitting. Buddha is the one who wakes up. Can you wake up? We sit in our zendo in the mornings. Well, we sit all day. We sit in the mornings, and then we have a noontime sit. (laughs) And it's different people, right? The people who can get up in the morning are very sleepy. Uh, The noontime people are uh, usually from the businesses in in the neighborhood that come and tend not to be practitioners of the community, but use our space as a place to come and sit. And... uh, 
And I, I like to sit with them most of all because they're not at all sleepy like the morning sitters or the <laughs> evening sitters. Uh, there's just something so alive about them, you know. And I don't know what they're doing when they're sitting, but they seem to <laughs> one inch of a Buddha. <laughs> Definitely so. So, um, we have to be so careful. I think the thing that, in my experience with my students, people become so discouraged about their practice and actually leave their spiritual practice because they have this idea of what they should be getting. And then they think that they're failing, right? So, one of the things I always try to encourage people is to, you know, be curious and realize, just as Kyogen's teacher, Isan, the early first story I mentioned, uh, what he was saying to people, to, to Kyogen, was, I can't tell you, because it's going to be yours. It's not going to be mine. It's not going to be what I can teach you. It's not our idea of enlightenment. I mean, there's so, much, so many problems with teachers nowadays. Another discussion I had with Michael today was about some of the difficulties with uh, abuses of power and sex and money <laughs> that happens with gurus and, and uh, Zen teachers and other Buddhist teachers and other spiritual traditions. I mean, it's just, there's no tradition, no religion, no spirit that doesn't have this problem. Uh, and I, I put a lot of responsibility on the Sangha, on the community. You have to call your teachers on their stuff. And because no teacher is 100% enlightened. But we have this idea, oh, you know. And uh, because I choose to go, you know, the reason I shave my head is because I'm just so uh, naughty that I think that if I, you know, have this outer sign, it'll keep me in line a little bit. You know, it's not because I'm like holy. It's quite the reverse. <laughs> I was late, late to ordaining. I've only been ordained for 20 years now. So I was late in life. Uh, I had a child. I had a whole other life. Um, I have a 43-year-old son. <laughs> so I had a, a long life of different, different activities. Uh, and uh, so I can see, you know, when there's that projection happening towards me. You know, I just recognize it. Uh, and yet I continue to shave my head because it does give me an opportunity to teach. People do seem to listen a little better. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, speak to me on the subway and so forth. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, kind of, it, it's useful, but there's, one has to be so careful about that. that, that kind of pro- we lose our own center of understanding and our own potential or insight when we give it away to someone else. And so many people become discouraged and, and leave the practice or just have a really limp practice because they don't recognize their own ability to do this. Um, here's a, a poem that, that addresses this problem. A blind horse trotting up on an icy ledge such as the poet. Once disburdened of those frog-in-the-well illusions, the sutra stores a lamp against the sun. So they, we've got this blind horse, you know, slipping and sliding on this icy ledge. What an image, huh? 
uh, blind horse trotting up an icy ledge, such as the poet. So this is this is the attempt to articulate. The poet is speaking. Once disburdened of those frog-in-the-well illusions, and the frog-in-the-well, you know, the frog's in the well, and so he has an opinion about life, about the world. The world is this round thing with these little cobblestones going up. That's the world of the frog. He thinks that's all there is. That's the illusion of the frog. And what is your illusion about enlightenment is what Kozin's trying to show us. So there's the poet who once he lets go of this illusion of what enlightenment is, once he lets go of that, he sees that all the sutras are just like a lamp compared to the sun. All the writings, everything you could say. And yet, you know, isn't it marvelous that this blind horse is willing to go up on that icy ledge one more time over and over and over again? Michael. That's what a poet, that's what a teacher does. Doesn't know. It's dangerous. And yet you do it. Because the sun is so much brighter than the sutras. Of course, the sutras are what we have. We can't really uh, <laughs> give a teaching uh, based on the sun. We can only experience the sun. So there's a Vietnamese monk, uh, Tulu, um, who wrote about the same time as Dogen did uh, in Japan. And he, he sums up the paradox in a, in a wonderful way, kind of very Vietnamese kind of quality to it. Yes and no. If we answer yes, even a speck of dust has existence. If we answer no, then the entire universe is empty. Yes and no, like the moon's face in the river. We cannot say it's there. We cannot say it isn't. So that's the conundrum. A contemporary North American poet, Sid Corman, addressed Tulu's question. If you would step into the infinite, only go to the finite everywhere. We cannot get it by trying to grasp the infinite. It's that dewdrop on that red maple leaf. So Zen poets uh, are known for their treatment of death. And as a matter of fact, you know, like uh, in Korea and Japan, you get married in in one tradition, but when you're ready to die, you die in the Zen tradition. It's... uh, we seem to be experts on death and funerals. And there are many wonderful poems 
that are called death poems. And, and there's a book of, by Joel Hoffman called Death Poems. It's quite, quite extraordinary. And uh, I use that a lot of times in my work in chaplaincy. It can be very uh, beneficial when, when we're facing our death. Uh, at any time in our life, we don't know, no matter how young or old we are, how much time we have left. And to be able to look carefully at that and to see how these, these great teachers have faced their death is, uh, is wonderful. And there's a tradition of right before you die, theoretically, you write this poem on the day of your death, right? So I'll give you a few. They're very short. <laughs> there's not much time. <laughs> That's very good. Uh, So here's one. Um, Empty-handed I entered the world, barefoot I leave it. My coming and my going, two simple hamplings that got entangled. That is that, that wonderful vulnerability and simplicity. Just that. Two simple things, my coming and my going. Another one wrote, had I not known that I was dead already, I would have mourned my loss of life. (laughs) And uh, Ryokan's famous one, I'm sure if you're familiar with them, you've heard this one. It's very beautiful. As my legacy, what shall I leave? Maple leaves in the autumn, cuckoo in the summer. Connecting his individuality with the wholeness of life. And like dewdrops on a lotus leaf, I vanish. It's wonderful. One, another one wrote, Upon the lotus flower, morning dew is thinning out. <laughs> if you're the dewdrop, and you know, dew only lasts an hour after dawn, and then it's gone. There's also a tradition uh, where it uh, started around, uh, about the 18th century in Japan where we write a, uh, a, on our birthday every year, we write a death poem. It's called a just-in-case poem. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot, you know. Um, and, of course, it's, very, it's become very formalized and the pr- uh, priests, we have to do it every year. It's kind of a, a formal thing. Um, and the first line expresses your life, how you see your life at that moment. And the second line, how long you lived. The third line, what feeling you have approaching death. And the fourth line, your understanding of sin. Um, and I'll read you a couple of somewhat contemporary ones. Cultivating the clouds and sowing seeds on the moon for 82 years, casting off, falling away, one arrow loosed from the string. So there, his first one is cultivating the clouds and sowing seeds on the moon. That's how he describes his life. You know, we think we have to accomplish certain things before we die, get certain degrees, have certain things. He sees his whole life as cultivating clouds and sowing seeds on the moon. Then he gives his age, and then his way of approaching death, casting off and falling away. 
One arrow loosed from the string. This is Zen view. Here's one from this century. I like this one a lot. Days and months passing by with things as they are. A con man going along with the flow. Truth is unobscured. The pilgrimage is eternally new. So simple view of himself. Water dripping, water freezing. For 66 years, there is a way in the midst of the void, and I return to the source. It's another contemporary uh, priest. So I, I wrote mine for this year. I'll share with you. But my birthday's already been. I'm a Capricorn. So here, here's mine. Um, in the midst of an electronic cloud, serving how I can, oh, 69 years, too busy. Now a quiet space, so seductive. It always was, is, here. Uh, and finally, we just have a little bit more time, um, and I want to have time for a discussion and hear your views. Uh, I do want to mention that we have memorial poems, which are a very big part of the Zen tradition. Uh, as I mentioned, we're into death, and we, <laughs> and, uh, we have occasion uh, to, uh, to, to have liturgies associated with uh, the passing of, of different people. And I thought I would read uh, a few contemporary ones uh, that I've written. The first one is every year on uh, the anniversary of Hiroshima, we have a big uh, memorial service in our Zendo. And this was last year's that I wrote. A fine August morning, the sky so blue and the sun shining bright, though even now he could feel the night's coolness still in the air, And suddenly, flash, boom, heat, pressure, silence. Little Yuri disappears, only a mark on the ground. Yuki's kimono pattern burned into her skin, her mother's bones sticking out of the earth. Ashes, ashes, all fall down. In an office in the West, the men had studied maps and concluded this was a good place. No bombs had spoiled it. So it would be efficient to photograph the historic damage. Efficient. Objective. Clean. Oh! All evil karma ever committed by all beings. How to atone. All my relations, all, 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 throughout space and time. So that is a more uh, evocative, longer, but it's it's in the traditional form of a memorial poem that I want to share with you because we can get so absorbed in our desire to 
recognize our oneness in the universe that we can forget that we are part of all of the violence and all of the evil karma that has ever been committed. And we have to remember that. We have to recognize that that also is part of our being. Otherwise, we separate it, split it, and make it the other. Bring it in, that's how we make it a change. That's how transformation occurs. That's why I read that one. Here's another one that's a little lighter. <laughs> Memorial. This is for a Sangha member uh, in our community um, who was a kind of well known feminist scholar by the name of Linda Hart. I think maybe some of you know her. Eternal, impermanent, the great wheel of birth and death rolls here, then there. Linda, your soft southern accent and sweet smile poured out the most outrageous, controversial, subversive theory. Your books and lectures were the least of it. Wearing high heels and leather, you were always smiling at self, seen as but one more rupture. Dying was hard work, and you turned it, too, into an art. Oh dark, misty morning, sun and clouds, rain and dark, like a fish darting this way and that. So that is the Zen approach to a memorial poem. It's not exactly an elegy, uh, but it's a different view of that kind. Let's see, I'll read one more and then we'll have some questions. This is for this wonderful drag queen that lived in our community for quite a few years. Uh, and he died of AIDS. Uh, and his Dharma name was Unzan, which was Cloud Mountain. Unzan, oh Cloud Mountain, the clouds gathering on that great mountain. Nothing is hidden. Unzan, like a red silk slip, your good heart keeps showing. <laughs> Brooklyn's stray cats miss you. Who feeds them now? Buenos años in Mexico, then Zazen with this crowd. Sitting session, trading campy stories, laughing, crying. Oh, we miss you. The cloud drifts by, blue sky above. Who is gone? Who is here? Cloud, sky, realization, and vast, wondrous light. So let me just end with Ryokan's admonition to us. Who says my poems are poems? They aren't poems at all. Only when you understand my poems aren't poems can we talk poetry? Maybe I made that more clear over the last hour. I hope so. Now I'd like to hear from you and drink some water. <laughs>